You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. Well, welcome back to From the Vault, where we get to listen to some of the stuff that we've covered over the last year or so on the program. It's all on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, but I've gone through and picked out some juicy stuff to listen to. Tony Hayes is in the studio. He's a Cambridge-educated physicist. He's actually got two doctorates, not one. Some people might think getting one PhD is enough, but Tony's got two. He had early eyesight problems. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so he came up with some aids for the blind, which wound up resulting in a parking sensor for which Tony has a patent. Tony, um, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. Give us a little bit of background about your education, and, and I believe you knew Stephen Hawking at, at university years well, ago. Well, indeed I did. I, I went to Salford University, did my first degree there, and then f- very luckily I went on from there to Cambridge to do a PhD in the physics department in the Cavendish Laboratory. Well, mm-hmm. that, that, of course, is a name-dropper's paradise. I mm-hmm. mean, there were people there who were the leading lights in physics, and one of them was Stephen Hawking. Now, I was... Um, experimentalist and and so I never worked with him he was a theoretician but at one stage I I lived with another experimentalist John Greenwood John had a car not many research students had a car in in the 60s in Cambridge Mm. and it was the swinging 60s we used to get in the car go around pick up Stephen and Jane his his fiance in in those days and go off to parties Mm -hmm. and I, I knew him socially like that yep and at that stage, he was he was walking around. He wasn't in, he wasn't in the condition that you'd now see him in. Yeah, he he could walk. He wasn't at all steady on his feet, but mm. he, he could walk. Mm. But uh, but uh, he expected not to live very long, and and, and Jane, his fiance, also expected that. Everybody else imagined that he would die. And the curious thing is, he he wasn't outstanding in those days. There were some very bright people around. He mm. was just one of the crowd. Mm. And you know, we parted company, and I didn't keep in touch. And I was astonished some years later to hear. Not only was he a fellow of the Royal Society, but he was writing some very interesting stuff about black holes and and on and on. You know, he's done wonderfully well. He, well it, and especially when you consider the, the profound disability that he's had, which has, as you said, got worse and worse over time. He's now, I think, in his early 70s. Yes. We discussed him a bit last week, and it's on our website, about uh, the breakthrough Starshot program to basically use nanocraft propelled by by sails which which get hit by lasers from earth and get pushed out to 20 percent of the speed of light and wind up going to alpha centauri that's the plan it's a proof of concept thing and and stephen hawking is one of the panel of scientists and eminent persons who've been brought together to help with that I was looking at a video of the press conference, so this is just recent in the last week or so, and there he is in his wheelchair. And, and I asked you on the way to the studio today how, how he's actually able to speak or how he's able to have his electronic voice respond to questions. And you explained to me that the only part of his body that he's actually able to control the movement of is a, is a muscle near in the corner of his eye on his cheek or something. And That's right. So he uses little, basically just a, a computer keyboard in front of him and uses this one bit of motor control that he has to input the answers. He's given, give, obviously given the, the questions ahead of time. But in, incredible that someone who's really had these very, you know, a lot of people would have given up a, a long time ago. He's stuck with it and is a a brilliant scientist and still doing good science. It is quite amazing. I think the only thing that he says that gets some advantage that the fact that he sits and thinks an awful lot. Yep. You know? Yep. You had a bit of a disability yourself. You had eyesight problems. Well, I was always very short-sighted. I, I, I had myopia, which is mm. short sight. And, mm. and, you know, most eyes are, are spherical. A person with myopia has a very elongated eye. 
and therefore the retina is very stretched. So the I muscles that are control that it should be sort of regulating the size of the lens or the shape of the lens aren't working properly. Is that no, right? they work okay, but they're not able to focus on the back of the retina because the back of the retina is so far away ah. with, with somebody with high, high myopia. Mm-hmm. And I wore these incredibly thick specs, which did you know wonders for my IQ, but nothing for my sex appeal. <laughs> and and. Uh, uh, and I got detached retinas in both eyes. And I, I had a whole, whole year in hospital having operations. The first seven failed. And then fortunately, I got shipped off to Moorfields in London and had a successful operation and had one eye. And then I drove for many years. I drove until I was 60, but then they stopped me driving. So right. I'm back on the bicycle now. And you developed some technology to help people with vision problems. Yes, I did. When I left Cambridge, I went to work in industry for a while as a physicist, but then I noticed that there was a unit at Nottingham University called the Blind Ability Research Unit. Now, that was in the psychology department. Well, I knew nothing of psychology, but I got in touch with them and we, t- we talked about various things and they invited me to join them as, as, as a sort of glorified technician. And they were doing lots and lots of interesting things out in the street, filming blind people, trying to assess the the stress of moving around without sight, all these sorts of things, but not doing them very well because they didn't have the technical expertise. So I'd, I'd done lots of electronics, and I, I was the sort of technical guy for quite a long time. And then I began to do more and more of my own research in there. And what do you believe? It ended up with a second PhD, and this time in psychology. So I've, I've been killing myself by degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and what was, the, what was the technology that you developed for people with eye, eye problems, with well, eyesight it, Interestingly enough, when I first joined the unit, the head of the unit said, well, look, I'm not going to let you work on electronic guidance devices for blind people because you'll get it wrong. The engineers always get it wrong, and a physicist, after all, is only a glorified engineer. <laughs> I want you to work on the, the problem of the hard of hearing blind, deaf blind people, hearing aids for the deaf blind, and also to learn to move around under blindfold with a long cane. And that second part, the long cane training, gave me a real insight into what was required. And Alfred Leonard, the guy I worked for there, he he was convinced that it was not going to be possible to give blind people vision if they couldn't see. What you had to do really was to pick out the essentials. What is the essential information you need to give a blind pedestrian in order that he takes the next few steps safely? And so what I did, I embarked on a series of developments which use ultrasonics, send out a pulse, get an echo back, and then working on that echo signal to extract from it essential information. I mean, clearly you want to know about something that's directly in your past, but if there's nothing directly in your past, then you can have the luxury of knowing about things that are to the side of your path for orientation purposes. And well, I Was this inspired by like, bats in a cave? Yes, yeah. very much, very much. Bats are extra, extraordinarily good at getting around, mm. and I enveloped developed the Nottingham obstacle detector, a simple handheld torch. So it's echolocation. Echolocation, and went on to develop the sonic pathfinder. Now, at one stage, I thought, well, this might work on the back of my car, you see. So I stuck it on the back of the car, and it was no good because the sonic pathfinder uses the notes, the musical scale to signal distance, and the car driver, unless he had perfect pitch, wouldn't actually recognize how far he was away from things. So I changed the display on the car to a pulse repetition rate. 
And of course, that was the birth of, I call it reverse aid, but it's now known as the... So, so the sensor. more beeps you get, the closer you are to the object. The faster obstacle. the repetition rate, mm. the, mm. then the closer Which you are. Which is exactly the way a parking it, sensor it, works. It is, well, it mm. is the parking sensor. Yep. I, I, Which I, you patented I, for 15 I, years. I patented it in 1983. Mm. I took it to Jaguar in Coventry, and, mm. and I remember distinctly that we drove it around. It was a, on my car, and... The, and they took me into the boardroom. They were very polite. They sat me down and said, well, Dr. Hayes, it's very nice. It's very nice, but we have to tell you, you like it because you're a one-eyed driver and you can't judge distances. Real people wouldn't want a thing like this. Oh. And oh. that was that. I mean, I, I put it on. People didn't want to drill holes in their car. That, mm. that was a big problem. Mm. I put it on trucks. I put it on... So it had commercial vans. applications. I yeah. put it on, on, on commercial vehicles in a small state but it didn't really take off until about the year 2000 by which time the patent had expired anyway so i i did not make my millions out of it that's a fascinating story you also wound up in australia you, you came out here with the guide dog association they recruited me out i was frustrated i did I so this did, is in I, about what 2000 uh, thereabouts no 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 this Earlier. was 1987 okay my goodness me you're, yep. you're dealing with a dinosaur here <laughs> i mean I, that was 1987, mm. and I came out to be the manager of research and development at the Guide Dog Association, which in those days was a national body based in Kew in yep. Melbourne. It's now fragmented. It's now is just a state body. Yep. But I, and, and I had a very interesting role because what I did was to get involved with university departments, and I would co-supervise PhD students doing all manner of interesting work, which had a, a bearing on the needs of the blind. Yep. And, you know, there's lots of stories there. You've also been involved in doing things at, well, the University of, of the Third Age? Oh, the well Third Age, yes. which, which is, sounds like a great thing. So it's for older people. You've got to be 55 or above to participate? That's right. Well, yep. that's, what I deal, I, that's what I do now. And I'm, it's physics courses. So anyone can do them. You've done them in Dramana. You've done them uh, elsewhere, I believe. And uh, you know, one of the one of the great ones that you talked about, or you mentioned to me off air, is is a, a, a discussion of how to measure the universe. Yes, I mean the U3A, as it's everybody knows it as the U3A. Yep. It, it, it's for elderly people, and 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 it's basically people who have some expertise. They come along, and it's a voluntary basis, and they teach anything, and and you can learn anything from ballroom dancing to how to play bridge. Well, I do physics. I mean, who would have thought that physics would be popular? I have a classroom full of 30 people who want more 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 all the time and it's, <laughs> it's keeping me on my toes and yes a couple of weeks ago i was i was doing a lecture on how to measure the universe well, so the now, now how do you because uh, as i mentioned to you also off air we, we've done a podcast that there are more stars in the in the heavens than grains of sand on earth and we explained how that was calculated i mean it was the back of the envelope calculation it's not a precise calculation but it turns out that it's very likely there are more stars than grains of sand on the universe which is an incredible thing to, yeah. to try to grasp so how do you measure the universe because that'd be a calculation you'd need to know to know that there are more stars than than sand oh yeah but i i, I entertain you see i mean the thing is that the greeks measured the diameter of the earth the distance of the moon and the distance of the sun now they didn't get the distance of the sun very accurately but they got the other two very, very accurately indeed. Mm. And, you know, I find myself living in East Doncaster, surrounded by Greeks, and I got the impression that they could all do this, and I didn't know how to do this. <laughs> so I set about learning how it was done. And mm. I tell them these anecdotes, and I entertain, and things like that. And, you know, uh, it's, once you know, it's a bit like a conjuring trick. Once you know how they did it, it's so damned obvious, you know. So, okay, we, we deal with measuring the size of the, the solar system, and then we go to the, how did, how did people measure the distance to the nearest stars? And that was to with parallax mm. but it wasn't done in the early days it telescopes had to be developed that could do that and then we go on to talk about seaford variables and 
uh, redshift and, and build up this ladder of measurement so that you end up by measuring the distance to the furthest galaxies. Mm. And one of the things, the key things that was required was to know the astronomical unit, the distance from the Earth to the Sun, and that was something that the transit of Venus and, and the study of that led to. And we've got a podcast also about the transit of Venus where we had your friend Graham Hannigan in the studio and, yes. and, and Dr. Ian Story from RMIT were also in there on our website beyondinfinity.com.au for that if you're interested. You've done these talks on, on how to measure the universe. Yeah. What are, what are some of the other things that you've covered in this, this series of stuff oh, well, for the, I, uh, the U3A? Two weeks ago, I did one on the philosophy of science, mm -hmm. our, our changing view of reality. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, I'm doing one on Fred Hoyle, the astronomer, why he did not get a Nobel Prize. Yeah, we, 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 you touched really, on that with me. And that's all to do with skullduggery and science. Can you give me, in a couple of minutes, what's, what's your philosophy of science? And, and this kind of relates to what I wanted to ask you to wrap this discussion up, which was about Australia wanting or needing to become a nation of innovators uh, and embrace technology and science, particularly from an early age and, and university courses and so on, to breed a, a bunch of people who are going to be the innovators of the future, who are going to sit you know, right in, in the middle of these technologies that have seem to becoming, be becoming crucial to the 21st century. So sort of out with the old, in with the new. Well, I think my philosophy of science is all, it's all to do with extending experience. How can we develop means of perceiving and understanding and, and experiencing the world, whether it's by sound vision or television from the other side of the world via satellites, all, all these sort of gadgets in a way that come from science. The fruits of science are, are the, the important things. And as far as... The, a nation of innovators. I think what we need to do is to put funding into research groups who are not simply working on applied technology. Every group that works on applied technology. My old pal, Professor Horridge at the ANU, he said he loves to get people together and he always has one or two people with the freedom to do what, whatever they like want to do. It's like at Google, you get 20% you get of your time at Google to, to do what you want yeah, to do. Yeah, free time, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, free time. And, and, and it was people using that 20% of their free time that, that they came up with Gmail, which is a very popular Absolutely. service. Absolutely. And, and lasers, so everything pops out of these odd people who can do their own thing and, mm. and have, uh, it's very hard to predict it's very hard to steer them in the right direction yep. but the important discoveries have always come from the the peripheral work not not the mainline work mm. now that uh, serendipity serendipity but mm. that that needs to be encouraged but i also think that when i think that the people who come up with the ideas should share in the results of the ideas so i i think that if you work for a firm, okay, you're working for them and the fruits of your labor is theirs by right. But on the other hand, I think you should be compensated for your contribution. And I think that that will be a great incentive for people to come ideas. And then when it comes to actually moving an idea from the, from the laboratory, from the bench into the real world, that is a huge problem. That is an enormous problem of funding venture capital. And I think the government has to play a much bigger role in that be prepared to bite the bullet more often mm. than it has done. This is an important thing that you're talking about, given that the CSIR is, is cutting hundreds of scientists as we speak. It's been in the well, news today. Right. I think I was hearing on the way here that there's several, yet, several hundred more scientists yeah. are, are, are out of a job at the CSIRO. And, of course, you know the story of Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi was invented yeah. by the CSIRO. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people were actually doing astronomy, uh, and it came out of that. Yeah, radio astronomy led to Wi-Fi, which we take for granted is everywhere. Absolutely extraordinary. You've been listening to Dr. Tony Hayes, the holder of two PhDs, one in physics and one in psychology. You're listening to From the Vault, the best 
from Beyond Infinity. Dr. Tony Hayes, the holder of two PhDs, one in physics, one in psychology, is here in the studio. He's kind of guest presenter today. He's actually going to be sitting in right the way through. So welcome again, Tony. And let's get stuck into neuroplasticity because it's a fascinating subject and you've got a, there's a real narrative to this. Tell me how you got involved. You wound up in, in unlikely over in San Francisco. You were yeah, based San in England. Francisco. You went over into San Francisco. Well, certainly in the 70s, and we're talking about the 1970s, a long time ago, the, the dominant paradigm was, was, in fact, that the brain was fixed. I mean, you, you, you developed a brain. It reached its peak about the 20s. And then from then on, it was all downhill. You were beginning to lose bits of it slowly. And if you had a trauma or a stroke, you'd lose a part of the brain, which might actually have a specific function, and that function you would be lost to you forevermore. Now, this, this paradigm has changed somewhat, and now we talk in terms of neuroplasticity. But in the 70s, it was, very, it was very much the dominant one. So what is neuroplasticity? It's saying that the brain, it's not as defined in terms of regions to do one thing than was previously believed. It's flexibility, flexibility in the brain. The, part, the fact that certain parts of the brain can take over the functions of other parts of the brain if right. the, those other parts are lost. Now, my story relates to a man in San Francisco called Paul Bacchirita. Now, that's a Spanish name. He was from a Mexican family born in, in America. He and his brother were both medics, and their father was a university lecturer, and he had a stroke, a very severe stroke, which made him unable to walk and unable to speak. And Paul, of his brother, subjected him, the father, to a, a fairly rigorous training program. They taught him to walk, and they taught him to speak. And, and in fact, he, he got back into work. He he carried on as a university lecturer. And when he eventually died, he died of a heart attack while walking in the Andes. Now, then Paul did something that was absolutely quite extraordinary. He attended his father's autopsy. In particular, he wanted to look at the brain. That's a pretty unusual thing to do, to go well, to your father's autopsy. Absolutely. I mm. can't think of anybody else who does that sort mm. of thing. Mm. But what, what Paul discovered was that the parts of the brain that had sort of died, as to, you know, in inverted commas, when the father had the stroke, had not recovered. They were still dead. Other parts of the brain had taken over. So his walking and his speech was all due to other parts of the brain taking over the functions of the bits that were lost. And this, and this convinced Paul that sensory neural, sorry, neuroplasticity was the way to go, the way forward. Now, he took a leap from that, and he decided that you could possibly use utilize this knowledge in terms of sensory plasticity perhaps you could see through your skin and wow. you know uh, he, paul reckoned that you didn't see with your eyes you saw with your brain mm. your eyes were simply transducers and the signals that went along to the brain were electronic signals and if you could mimic those signals by getting them into the central nervous system by some other path, then it would be vision. And, and that is the case with your eyes. They are, they are literally like a couple of cameras, the lenses, and then the data in electrical form goes through to the part of the brain that processes your vision. That's and it gets, it gets inverted and all sorts of stuff. So you'd see the world upside down if it wasn't for your brain correcting things for you. Yes, the, but, but there is a slight, slight proviso in that. Hubel and Weasels later found out that certain parts of the processing of seeing took place actually in the retina. The processing seems to take place along the visual pathway. Mm. So it's not, a, it's not quite as simple as the camera okay. and the receiver at okay. the other end. Yep. But certainly in Paul's terms, it was. And what Paul did, he built a dentist chair with 
400, a 20 by 20 array of solenoids at the back of the dentist chair. Hmm. And you could take your shirt off and you could sit on these things. And he presented pictures through the skin of the back. Now, where the picture was bright, the solenoids would rattle. And where it was dull, they would not be rattling. So this was a way of, for someone who, who didn't have perfect vision, they could actually receive an image through a kind of an imprint that was being made on their back by these little solenoids, by yes. vibrations, by little vibrations. That's right. In different places, which, which, which were corresponded to effectively to pixels in an image. In, in, indeed. Let me backtrack a little bit mm. on, on why I got out there and what my experience of this chair was all about. Yeah. I was working in Nottingham University in the Blind Mobility Research Unit. And believe it or not, in, those, in the 70s, uh, my colleague and I, John Armstrong, we, we were probably at the forefront in terms of portable computers and apparatus. We were out in the streets recording how blind pedestrians coped with the world. We're also developing electronic guidance devices for the blind. We, uh, I mean, this was, these were portable computers. I mean, portable in those days meant sort of backpacks, and mm. on one occasion we resorted to a shopping trolley. But, I mean, it was portable stuff. And Paul Bakirita invited John and I out to San Francisco to try and get this dentist chair up and mobile so blind people could use it actually in the street. Now, what I did, what everybody does when they go to that laboratory, was to take your shirt off, sit in the dentist chair, and perceive the images through the back. And you couldn't perceive anything. You, you just got a, 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 slight, a, a slight sort of tickling sensation. But then they gave you the ability to move the camera. The camera was held on a sort of crane in front of you. The moment you started to move the camera, the picture came alive. You suddenly were scanning this picture across your back. Now, the resolution, of course, was very, very poor. We're only talking about 400 pixels. Mm. But nevertheless, you could see it. And, you know, vision is like that. If you stop the eyeball moving, then vision fades. The eye needs to be constantly refreshing its signals by these little saccades, the tiny movements of the eyeball. And were the people who, who were strapped in with this device on their back... Were they perceiving that image in their mind's eye as a sighted person would perceive an image? Or how, how would they see it? Where did they see it? Well, let me get to that question, the answer to that question. What, what happened was that you could recognize simple shapes. There was the effect of parallax. N near things would move across the visual field more rapidly than far things, which is very much like vision. And then after you'd played around with this for, for a while, the technicians would play a trick on you. They, they'd turn the lens on the camera, give it a twist, and the picture would suddenly get bigger. It would loom up big, and you would jump backwards. So you were definitely perceiving it out there in the real world in front of you, although it was coming in through your back. And it was very, very... I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced it was very similar to vision, but very low-resolution vision. Hmm. Now, what they wanted to do to get it portable is that they, 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 the solenoids were too heavy, what they had devised was a body stocking using tiny electric shocks. They used an array of electric shock stimulators, and they found that the stomach was the most useful place to place this thing. And provided they kept the current very low and used a con constant current source, then you didn't actually electrocute anybody. And the perception was very much like a vibrating solenoid. And so they had this body stocking, and we started to get it mobile. Unfortunately, there was a, an unintended consequence. When, when the 
when the contact between the body stocking and the person moved or got bad, then the, although it was a constant current source, the current density at that particular point got very high. Mm. And it was like sticking a pin in somebody. And I'm afraid blind pedestrians don't do very well if they trying to cope with their environment, not seeing very much and having pins stuck in them. It so stressful enough it anyway. It was very, very stressful. Stressful enough anyway, negotiating really a, a public space or roads and so on, pedestrian crossings and the like, without adding this added thing of, of uh, possible that, little that, sharp right. pains and so stuff. So that was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. And the other disappointment was that calculations, and one of them was done by Richard Gregory, the very eminent visiting British scientist, who showed that really the back didn't have the resolution for this sort of thing. You can poke anybody in the back with a finger and they'll feel it but if you poke them with two fingers simultaneously they will only know it's two fingers provided they're a certain distance apart the right. two point threshold as the psychologists call it right now the argument was of course if you're presenting pictorial information the two point threshold measurements didn't really come into it but i'm afraid that was not a very good argument paul went on to develop all sorts of sensory feedback things work on balance and he changed the display he moved it to the tongue which is a very sensitive part of the body now producing feedback systems that work on on the tongue wow one of the really interesting thing is that several people regarded paul as a bit of a charlatan he certainly was an enthusiast for what he was doing he was certainly very good at presenting his work but what happened was there was an endless string of elderly blind gentlemen would come along take their jackets and shirts off sit in the dentist chair experience this thing and were told that in the future blind People will be seeing this way. And when they put their shirts and jackets back on, they said, well, what, what's preventing the work from going forward? And the answer was, well, of course, finance is always a problem. Mm. And out would come the checkbooks. Right. Now, not many scientists can do research and get money quite like that. And, and it led to a lot of jealousy. And a mm. lot of people regarded Paul as a bit of a charlatan. And that he might be misleading people, creating false hope. Absolutely. Sort of mm. Absolutely. And, you know, I could never, I have to confess, I never could quite make up my mind. He was certainly onto something, but was it ever going to do anything? I didn't know. And then years later, when I was back in Australia and, 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 and living over here, a man called Norman Deutsch produced a book, a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. I'll hold it up to the microphone so <laughs> listeners can see it. Quite a, a popular book, a bestseller. The first two or three chapters are all about Paul Bakirita and the story about his father and, and the work he did on sensory substitution systems. Mm. So not a charlatan. Someone well, who was ahead of his time, who was, well, who was vulnerable to that charge. Well, but regarded as one of the father figures in neuroplasticity. Mm. And, and, and I'm very excited that I once worked with yeah. him. I mean, it, Fantastic. Yeah. So did he go further with this? Did, was there a, a follow-up device? I mean, was, what were the limits of this? Obviously, you've mentioned that there was only so many sort of receptors that you've got in your back, so that wasn't the ideal way of doing it. And then, of course, we have gone on. We've got bionic ears, and, and you were telling me off-air before that uh, Cochlear in Melbourne, Graham Clark's company... Uh, that he's been involved with, are actually working on a bionic eye, which would presumably be using a charge couple device and finding a way of, of taking the data from that and actually tapping straight into the optic nerve. And, and, and that would be the way that that vision would be received into your mind. Yes, I think the two important things that have happened since then are the invention of the CCT camera, the charge couple device, mm. the heart of the digital camera, Mm. And, of course, the people who invented that got the Nobel Prize in 2009. This means that you can have very, very tiny television cameras. You no longer got the great clumsy things. Well, that it's we literally, it's a, it's, a it's a chip. It's a chip. With, it's yep. a chip. Mm. And also the other work that's done, and a lot of it is done in Melbourne by Graham Clark, on the bionic ear. 
getting electronics into the head, into the human body. It's, it's, it's a very unforgiving environment to put electronics, but they've done a lot of the work that actually enables them to accomplish that. And the bionic eye people, of course, are tapping into this and using the same sort of techniques for getting, for getting displays actually onto the retina itself. Now, the Melbourne bionic eye has 600 pixels. Paul Bakarita had 400. So, you know, the resolution of the image is getting better. We need thousands, we need millions to get real sight, of course. But I'm a, a walking, living example of somebody who actually does really quite well on, on very s small amount of vision. I've only got about 10% vision, but yep. I get around and you often mistake me for a sighted person. That's right, I um, do. You take it for granted. It's, it's <laughs> amazing, actually, and I have, to sort of, I have to be reminded by you, hey, slow down, we're in a dark room or dark passageway. I need to follow. Indeed. So there have been enormous developments, and Paul himself went on to work on all sorts of sensory feedback systems, feedback systems for the deaf, where he was able to communicate the pattern of tones to skin stimulators, and he worked on systems for people who had vestibular problem, balance problem. Mm -hmm. and, the, and there's a YouTube film that you can find of him actually training a lady who couldn't basically stand and walk anymore because she'd lost her balance with feedback presented to the tongue. And these feedback sessions would go on for a number of hours and then she would do without them and manage perfectly well without them. And then after a few weeks of training with the devices, she didn't need the device any anymore. And this film of her riding a bicycle, this film of her ballroom dancing with Paul himself. Quite astonishing stuff. Mm. So from someone who was sort of so at the cutting edge that at the time Paul Bakurita was considered a possible fraud and then there were questions about he's taking money from people who was maybe being misled by him or, or false hope created to being finally recognised, I presume, well after his death? Unfortunately, yes. Mm. Oh, well, although I think he was pretty well recognised towards the end of his life, yep. but certainly after his death. Yeah, no, it's dead. fascinating. If listeners wanted to check out that book, it's Norman Deutsch's The Brain That Changes Itself, published by Scribe. You can check that out. Stories of personal triumph from the frontiers of brain science. It, it really is an interesting subject. Just briefly, I'm going to sort of take a slight tangent, but phantom limbs, you know, so someone has, someone loses a limb and they can still feel that they've got that limb. It's like the brain hasn't got used to the fact that there's no limb there. Tell me, how, how does that tie in with neuroplasticity? What, what's going on there? Certainly the brain is hanging on to the sensations or, mm. or believing it's getting sensations from this phantom limb. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and there's many examples. We've got a podcast we did a while ago, and unfortunately they've had a lot of amputees from improvised explosive devices in the Middle East in recent years. So the development of sophisticated electronic prostheses has improved a lot and, and been developed a lot and been well-funded. They've now got a bionic arm. We've got a podcast of that name on our website it can actually tap into nerve endings that exist in the shoulder of, of an amputee and he can control his arm using his mind. So, Absolutely. So, that, so that's where they're going with this. It's an example of where an existing system is being tapped into in an artificial way and the brain's kind of coming to the party. It's, it's, there's some adaptation as well, which is what you're talking about with that, plasticity. That, that is absolutely right. And even if you tap into the wrong nerve empty endings, there's always the possibility that the brain might adapt to use those particular nerves to control the movement that you want to seek. Provided you provide the feedback, there's a possibility that the brain will adapt. 
it's that flexibility that which is so exciting. Mm. It's a fascinating subject, neuroplasticity. You've been listening to Dr. Tony Hayes, the holder of two PhDs, one in physics and one in psychology. Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RWPFM on Facebook, Infinity RPP on Twitter.